that. Good morning, Stone Creek Church. Great to be with you this morning. If I have not met you, my name is Mike Reinsel. How awesome is it to have your son, one of your kids, pray God's word, pray scripture over us as a church as you're getting ready to share the word? Um, that's amazing. Michael, I will give you the younger and better look looking version if uh, I can claim the humility version, okay? Because I don't think you got that one down yet. I'm just saying, <laughs> if we haven't met, my name is Mike Reinsel. I'm the executive pastor here at Stone Creek, and that means lots of different things in different places, but for our church, it means that I get to lead the staff and the operations and the strategy that undergirds the vision that God has given Pastor Stephen and Pastor Joey as the pastoral leaders of our churches. My family, I've got, uh, I've got three kids, two grandkids, my mom is sitting here, all of my family, all of their extended family calls Stone Creek home except for one outlier. My daughter Carly, 25 years old, 18 months ago moved to Australia to land down under. God knows why she wanted to move there, but she wanted to move to Australia. I was texting with her yesterday and I said, babe, I'm going to um, share God's word tomorrow at Stone Creek. Are you going to be tuning in? Are you going to be watching? Are you going to be listening? And she was like, well, dad, we're, we're 15 hours ahead. It's going to be one or two in the morning. I love you but I'm going to be sleeping and I'll catch you on YouTube. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I'm one of those statistically rare people. Um, I gave my life to Jesus as a 32-year-old. I knew all about Jesus, but I didn't proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life until I was 32 years old. And that is statistically rare because the Barna studies will tell you that 94% of people who give their lives to Jesus do that before the age of 18. That's why our NowGen Ministries, Aaron was talking about NowGen Ministries, that's why it's so, so important to be investing in kids and in students and in our Camp Arrowhead environments because that is the low-hanging fruit, that is the greatest opportunity that we have to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I have kind of a business background and a pastor's heart. I'm a blend of that. And when I gave my life to Jesus at 32, that was a radical transformation for me. And I was in a business partnership with a guy who was not a believer at the time. And so I had that kind of breakup conversation you would have with a girl. I said, it's me, not you. I've changed. And I left that business to him and I started a new business. And Christina, my wife and I were, were committed to starting and growing a business that was honoring God. I don't, I don't know what Christian business even means, but we wanted to honor God in the business environment and make Jesus famous in that environment. And God just really honored that by the people he brought, by um, how that business grew and how profitable it was. I mean, there were, there were Bible studies going on organically through the week in that business. We were leading people to Christ. We were giving people, we were giving away more to the kingdom of God than we ever thought we would make. And we honestly just thought that we had arrived. We had just built our dream house in Alpharetta Milton area. It was a horse farm. My wife and my daughter were showing horses at the time. It had the beautiful riding ring and the stables and the house and the pool. And from the world's perspective, we had arrived and we were faithful to God. And then God started to speak. God started to speak in my quiet time. And I don't really have those burning bush moments in my prayer time, but this was the closest thing that I've ever had to the audible voice of God. And God clearly said and simply said, sell the house and serve me. Sell the house and serve me. 
Now, that was over 15 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Now, the outcome of hearing God's voice and hearing him tell you something like that when you have just built your wife's dream house is that you have to go home and tell her what God said. (laughs) And I remember the day that I went home to Christina, and I was excited to share the news with her of what God had said. And I would describe my wife, Christina, as kind of a, a spicy margarita, spicy on the inside, a little salt around the rim. And when she enters a room or enters a place, I mean, there is new life in that room, but there's also some truth in that room, right? And so I told her that God spoke and that he wanted us to sell the house, to be debt-free, to be mortgage-free, and to serve him in full-time ministry. And she looked at me with the loving eyes she always looks at me with, and she said, well, he ain't told me that. (laughs) I said, babe, would you at least pray about it? And she said, no, I don't think I'm interested in that. I know what happens when we pray. And so I said, well, my, my wife is a type A personality, so I know to let that go for a little while. So a couple of weeks later, she came back to me. She said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to throw out a fleece. I'm going to pray that if this is God and not you, because I think it might be you and not God, that he'll give us a contract quickly and for the dollar amount we need to get out of the house. I said, well, praise Jesus, that's the start. We list the house. Literally a week later, I get a call from the real estate agent. He tells me the guy wants to meet me to look at the house. We walk around the house. At the end of that time, we're standing in the driveway, and this guy looks me in the eyes. And he says, Mike, can I ask you a personal question? I said, sure. He said, if this house is close to your work and school and church and you love it and all that, why are you selling I said, John, that's a really great question. And I don't know where you are in your faith life, but here's what God is stirring up in my heart and in my prayer and in our family. And I just poured it out there for about 10 minutes. And at the end of that, he looked at me and he said, okay, thank you. And I thought, well, that sailed over the top. Um, But the next morning he called me up. He says, we need to grab lunch today. And we're sitting across the lunch table. John sets down his stuff and he looks at me and he says, Mike, my wife and I were praying last night. And we feel like your house is the right house for our family, but we also feel like he connected us to you to a value for whatever he has for you in ministry and mission, and we would like to give you a full price offer on your house. Two weeks later, full price offer, that was the fleece that Christina had thrown out, and that was the beginning of our journey from a very robust workplace ministry into full-time vocational ministry. Now, I want to say that I think God speaks to us differently Christina would call herself a two-by-four girl. She said, God might whisper to you, but he's got to whack me with a two-by-four for me to hear his voice. And that was her two-by-four moment. And it was our transition as a family into full-time vocational ministry. Now, I really love that the first time I get to stand on this platform and share a message with you is talking about prayer because prayer is a deep passion for me. I've seen prayer change me, I've seen prayer change people around me, and I've seen prayer change circumstances that I thought were unchangeable, but for God. We are in the middle of a series called House of Prayer 2. Can I hear you say House of Prayer? House of Prayer 1 was back in March, and it was based on Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And I really believe that God is honoring today our church's deeper commitment and focus to prayer. The growth that Aaron talked about, that's a result of deep commitment and faithfulness to prayer. 
And so part of this morning's scripture should feel familiar to you too, that God would do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. That was the scripture that was the headline scripture of our Beyond campaign a few years ago. And during that Beyond campaign, you were just so incredibly generous and prayerful during Beyond. And if you were here, you saw it. If you weren't here, you've probably heard about it. But God did some incredible things through our church. We launched a new campus down in Sandy Springs called Elevate City Church. We uh, have partnered. Yeah, amen. Let's go for that. We invested really deep, deep in one of our ministry partners, She Is Safe, that helps women who are being trafficked get out of that and thrive in the balance of their lives. We built a new church in Nicaragua with Compassion International. We eliminated a big chunk of our church's debt. And I could go on and on, but a, a big movement of God happened as a result of prayer and a result of the generosity of the people in this room. This series, House of Prayer 2, is a shorter series. It's three weeks. Three prayers that Paul prayed for the church. Last week, Pastor Aaron taught on Paul's prayer in his letter to Philemon. And he taught that prayer helps create the life-giving relationships, the, the koinonia, the community that we all need. Next week, Pastor Joey will be here with us, and he'll teach on Paul's prayer in uh, the book of Philippi. But for today, the scripture that my son read is a prayer that Paul wrote as a part of a longer letter from Paul to the churches in Ephesus. And it's written to the house churches of the day. They didn't have big churches like this. They had smaller house churches. And they would have taken this letter church to church and house to house and read it and prayed that prayer over that church. But why do we need another series on prayer? I mean, why this just kind of ongoing focus on prayer for our churches? Why do we keep saying that prayer is so important for you and for our churches? We say that because prayer isn't just a part of having a relationship with God. Prayer is central to the power that God desires for us. So let me ask you a question. Who is the most powerful person of prayer that you know? Think about that for just a second. Who is the most powerful person of prayer that you know? If you were going through something tragic, you lost a loved one, you lost your job, you're going through a divorce, you just were diagnosed with a terminal illness, whatever it is, you would go to this person for two reasons. One, you know that they will pray, and two, because you have experienced that they pray effective prayers. Miriam and Marzier were born in Iran to Muslim families. Each of them was led to Christ in Iran, and they separately moved to Turkey, where they met in 2005 through a ministry that was teaching about Jesus and distributing Bibles to Turkish Muslims. They became fast friends, and wanting to share Jesus with the people from their own country in Iran, they moved back from Turkey to Iran, and collectively over the next few years, they gave away over 20,000 Bibles in a country where it's literally illegal to share about Jesus and to distribute Bibles. And then in March of 2009, their apartment was raided. Their Bibles were confiscated. They were arrested for apostasy, basically for denying their Islamic background faith and embracing a relationship with Jesus. They were brought to Evan Prison. Evan Prison is the worst and most notorious prison in Iran. 
Evan Prison houses the most hardened criminals in the most horrific of circumstances. They watched rapes, they witnessed murders, they experienced torture firsthand, and they lived through unspeakable atrocities as they were imprisoned together in a large, crowded cell. Every week, they were handcuffed and they were brought before the prison guards. And they were told if they would just deny their faith in Jesus that they could be released. Nothing more, just deny Jesus and we'll let you go. And every time, every week, they refused to deny Jesus and they were returned to their overcrowded and the horrific conditions of the prison that housed them. Christina and I met Miriam and Marzier as a part of a prayer group that were committed to praying for them daily, for their strength, for their safety, for their release, but knowing that only a miracle of God would bring about their release. We would pray passionate prayers for God to work a miracle, but we also lived in the unfortunate reality that short of a miracle of God, these two beautiful women in their 20s would likely die in prison simply for having professed faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. So church, what if we prayed prayers as big and as bold as these two women prayed? What if we had the faith, the conviction, and the confidence that these two women had? What do you think God would do with prayers like that rising up from these seats this morning? With a quick show of hands, and my hand is already up, how many of you wish you prayed more consistently, more deeply, and more effectively? Raise your hand. Look around the room. There aren't a lot of hands down. The majority of the people in this room are saying they want to pray different prayers. And I get it, just telling you that you should pray is not a profound insight. I mean, no one is hit, sitting here this morning saying, wow, Mike, I'm so glad I came to church this morning. I'm a Christian and I had no idea I was supposed to be praying. Thank you so much for telling me I'm supposed to be praying. But I know from my personal experience, and I suspect from the number of hands that went up this morning, that most of us wish that we were better at prayer. So what if there was one thing in your life that if it were to improve could change the rest of your life, change the lives of people around you, and even change eternity? Well, church, I believe that one thing is prayer. So let's jump into the text that Michael read for us this morning. Mike, sorry, I always call him Michael. He, he, he says, Dad, I was always in trouble when you called me Michael. Um, he likes Mike. So anyway, the text that Mike read for us this morning. Um, and I just want us to ask ourselves one big question. How do I become better at prayer? And I'm going to break Paul's prayer that uh, Mike read for us into three different sections that I think teach us three different lessons that Paul has for us. So beginning in verse 14, if I get in the right chapter, that will help. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, if you were to back up to the beginning of chapter 3, 
um, is talking about, Paul is um, talking about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and saying that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, for the Greeks, it's for all people. And with that burden, Paul is saying that there is no posture that he can have other than being down on his knees. And so that's the first point that I want us to think about this morning, that our place and our posture of prayer matter. Paul says he bows on his knees before the Father, and that honestly would have been not been the norm for Paul in the day. If you were a Jew or a Christian in that day, you would have been standing up, raising your hands up. That would have been your posture of prayer. For many of us here this morning, our posture of prayer is finding a comfortable chair, a cozy blanket, a hot cup of coffee. And I'm not saying that that's a bad posture, and I don't want you to stop doing that. I'm really glad that you're praying that way. But what if we experience the inconvenience and the discomfort of being on our knees in prayer? I go by Pastor Gibbs' office, Stephen Gibbs' office, every day. His office is right across from mine. And I often will look through the closed door and see him on his knees in prayer. What an amazing example for our church. So what if you changed the place and the posture of how you pray and you got in a quiet place, away from the distractions, you got on your knees purely out of reverence to our Father and you positioned yourself as being desperate and dependent before God. I've got a friend in Dallas when Christina and I lived there for a couple of years. I met John Bress. John is six foot six. He's tatted up head to toe. He's a former drug addict, former homeless. He has had a train wreck of a life, but he has taught me a daily desperate dependence on God that I never thought I needed. I didn't need because I was successful independent of that desperation in relationship with God. And praying with John had one guarantee. It was always going to be uncomfortable and sometimes even embarrassing. But that's what desperate prayer sometimes looks like. He would always get on his knees. It didn't matter where we were. We would be in the middle of a restaurant and John would get in a position of reverence to God and get on his knees desperately dependent on the relationship he had with his heavenly father. In Milton and Alpharetta, few of us are desperate in our prayers. We don't need to be because we're so self-sufficient. We have most of what we need without God, and we use God as the backstop when things don't go how we plan them or we fall short of our own abilities. Nearly 20 years ago, a friend of mine encouraged me to go to a Trappist monastery in Conyers to spend the day in prayer. And I didn't tell my friend this, but I went for the first time thinking there is no way that I can spend a whole day in prayer at this place. I admit that I was uncomfortable and I was intimidated, but guess what happened? The first time I went there, I experienced the presence of God in a way that I never had before. I just felt like God met me there, and every time since for the last 20 years, God has met me there. And it's the one place that I go to that I know without a doubt that I'm going to experience the presence and the power of God. For my first eight years going to that monastery, I never talked to a human being, just to God. I was drawn back each time to that feeling of the power and the presence of God. And then one day after eight years, I met one of the 50 monks who lived there. 
And he started meeting with me for an hour each month on my day of prayer. These monks spend literally their whole day in prayer. That's their calling. That's their ministry. They're so stinking good at it. I mean, they are the the Navy SEALs of prayer. They are incredible guys. And this monk taught me that real prayer simply meant coming into the presence of God. And every month since, for 20 years, when I go to that monastery for my monthly day of prayer, it reminds me that prayer isn't a duty to be completed. It's a highly privileged relationship to embrace. And I've learned that the place and the posture of my daily prayer influences my perspective and the power of my prayer as well. And my perspective has shifted from thinking, how much time do I need to spend with God today, to I wonder how much time God will actually spend with me today. Church, our place and our posture matter. The second section in this little prayer from Paul begins in 17, says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The second thing that Paul is teaching us, I think, in this prayer is dwelling in the presence of God. St. Augustine calls it witness, witness, a witness to God, the state of being closely connected to God. And Augustine taught that being with God is more important than doing for God. And I think that's kind of our, our second point here in this prayer is that God's deep desire for us is to be with him first and to do things for him leading out of our witness. In other words, we as a society, we as as people sitting here this morning, even as staff, we tend to jump into what we're doing for God instead of focusing on being with God. But Jesus modeled the witness that St. Augustine is talking about. He consistently leaves massive crowds of people for witness between him and his father. Listen to some of the verses in Scripture that describe the importance that Jesus placed on prayer and being with his Father. The first one is Matthew 14, 23. It says, After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. Next one. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to desolate place, and there he prayed. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Be with God first through prayer, and let our good work come out of that. Church, I think we often get it confused We get it confused as the people of God. We get it confused as individuals. We think that we should do for God and be with God in the time that remains. Church, I think that our busyness is the enemy of our witness. Let me say that again. Our busyness is the enemy of our witness. And can I just say something that I think is going to be controversial this morning? 
And before I say this, I want you to know that I'm not anti-electronics and that I'm guilty of this as well. But I think for many of us, our electronic devices are robbing us of our best possible relationship with our Father. Many of us are literally enslaved to those devices. We go to sleep with them on our bedside. We wake up and it's the first thing we grab and we are tethered to those devices all day long. No time for quiet. No time for God. In church, God shapes us in the quiet. God shapes us in the quiet. When we have nothing but his word and his presence, God shapes us. That's what prayer does. Our, our witness through prayer shapes us into the imago Dei, into the image of God. And we actually begin to look more like Jesus simply by spending time with him in prayer. Prayer brings us into a deeper relationship with Father and being with him shapes us into his image. Oswald Chambers, a great um, pastor of a church and writer, has a great saying that I love. He says, it's not so much that prayer changes things as that prayer changes people, and people change things. The last part of Paul's prayer, beginning in verse 20, says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, admittedly, those are kind of coffee cup verses. I personally think Christian coffee cups ought to be abolished, but that's just my personal bias. And I will, uh, but for this, keep it to myself. Um, but I think that Paul is grounding us here. He's saying that God can do way more than our minds could ever think to ask for and that the power for that rests within us believers, as believers, but that we have to ask. God wants us praying bold prayers. God wants us to ask, and that's the third point. God wants us praying bold prayers. Paul is saying that we can't pray a prayer that is so big that God can't answer it. And we should memorize that passage. We should ask God to do big things through our prayers because praying bold prayers actually makes us better at prayer. We should pray for the supernatural, and we, we, we really shouldn't be surprised when the supernatural happens. I was talking to a friend of mine this week whose wife fell and had a brain hemorrhage, and they went through this tragic time, and they went back for the MRI, and the hemorrhage is gone. Miracle of God. And we're looking at each other and saying, we believe in a God of miracles. We know that God does miracles. And then we're surprised that he did a miracle. I mean, come on. That's funny to me. So what are you wanting for yourself? What are you wanting for your family, for your life? Whatever it is, it's probably smaller than what Paul is talking about here. Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus and for us is that we think bigger, that we dream bigger, and that we pray bigger our lives. Not just that God would fill the gap between what we can do on our own and what we hope for, but that he would literally transform us into his image, and then that he would do amazing things with and through us. That people would look at you and at me, and that they would see Jesus in and through us. That we would pray big, bold prayers like we've never prayed before, and that we would have the confidence that God would answer those prayers.
Now, before I move on, I want to say one thing real quickly. I've had people tell me that they prayed fervently and boldly for something and that their prayer wasn't answered. Maybe you're in that category. And if I'm honest, I prayed big prayers for miraculous things that just didn't have the outcome that I had hoped for and prayed for. But church, that hasn't stopped me from praying bold prayers. What it's done is it's grounded me in the reality that God is sovereign and that he knows better than I do. And why he brings miracles in some circumstances and why he allows tragedy in others, I'll never know this side of heaven. But as I've grown deeper in my relationship with Father through prayer, and I've, as I've lived more of my life, I've learned that he is always sovereign and that he always redeems what he allows. And I've learned that my prayers need to be more about aligning me to his sovereignty instead of him to my needs and desires. Do you remember Miriam and Marzier? On the 259th day of their incarceration at Evan Prison, they were shackled as they were every week. But instead of being brought before the prison guards, they were led down a hall and down another hall and into a van, and they were brought to the high court of Iran. They stood before the judge, and the judge looked at those two beautiful women and said, you are released. You may go home. And they had a week. They had a week to get all their stuff together to leave Iran with the knowledge that they would never come back. They would never come back to their family. They would never come back to what they knew. And they left all of that behind them. A few weeks after that, Christine and I got a call from a friend of ours who had been part of the prayer group that had been praying for Miriam and Marzier. She said that they had made their way to Atlanta and that they needed a free place to live. We had a bunch of rental properties at the time. One had just become free a few days earlier. And frankly, we didn't even need to pray about it. We just knew that God had connected us to their story to avail them a free place to call home in Atlanta. Over the next two years, we got to build a friendship with them. And we learned in great detail what they had gone through while in prison simply for refusing to deny their relationship with Jesus. Incredible, faith-filled, deeply prayerful women. And the more I got to know them, the more desperately I wanted what they had. I wanted the same boldness that they had to pray for the impossible. I wanted the same confidence that they had that God would answer their prayers. I wanted the trust that they had that God knew what was best for them, even more than they knew. And I remember Christine and I sitting across the table from them at dinner one night talking about prayer. And toward the end of the night, I looked at Miriam and I said, Miriam, let me ask you a question. When you were in prison and they would bring you every week in front of those guards and tell you if you just denied Jesus, you would be released, did you ever think of denying Jesus? Just saying it verbally, but knowing in your heart that you didn't deny Jesus? And Miriam looked at me, she teared up, and she said, Oh, Mike, I could never do that to my Jesus. I knew he would answer our prayers. He always answers our prayers. 
These two women are unlike anyone I've ever known before or since. They have the confidence, the expectation, and the experience that God will answer their prayers. And so, church, what if we prayed prayers as big as these women, with the boldness, the conviction, and the faith that they have? What do you think God would do with those kinds of prayers? And let me just say that bold prayers are not once-and-done prayers. I've literally prayed some prayers for a decade before God answered them. Bold prayers are usually answered because we're consistent and persistent in our time with Father. So what prayers are you praying? I mean, if I gave you a blank piece of paper this morning and I asked you to write down the prayers that you are praying, what would be on that paper? Or even better, if I were to tell you that you will get tomorrow what you're praying for today, what would you have tomorrow? Church, what if we consistently prayed prayers that our Father would do things in our lives that could never be accomplished but for God? We're launching in the fall a 10-year vision called X Multiply for our churches. It's going to be so big, so extraordinary, that there is no way that we will accomplish it but for praying big, bold, courageous prayers and trusting Father for incredible outcomes. As we close, I want to go back to Paul's prayer for a minute. In verse 14 through 19, it's basically just kind of one massive run-on sentence. But the prayer that Paul is praying is his desperate cry for us. It's Paul's cry that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That's the gospel. That there is a God and that he is good, but there's a problem. It's our sin, yours and mine. But there's a solution for that problem and his name is Jesus. And that solution requires that we surrender our lives to him. Paul says that you being rooted and grounded in love through the person of Jesus Christ would comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. That you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that we would be filled with the fullness of God. You see, Paul is literally praying a miracle over the early church and over us this morning. That we would embrace the mind-blowing love of God that we would experience all that life has for us. But church, we will never experience all life has for us if we don't understand God's love for us. And we understand God's love for us best through prayer. E.M. Bounds is a pastor and author back in the 1800s. In his classic little book called Power of Prayer, he wrote, what the church needs today is not more or better machinery. Not bigger buildings, new organizations, or more novel methods. What the church needs is people whom the Holy Spirit can use. People of prayer. Mighty people of prayer. The band is going to come forward. We're going to have our prayer team out front. Every Sunday, we invite you to come forward in prayer. We've started that several months ago, and you have come forward But I know, sure as I'm standing here, that there are people sitting there, because I've talked to you, who have said, I wanted to come forward. I was just too embarrassed. 
I looked around the room and there are people that I know and I don't want them to know what I know and to see what I see and to see me crying with that person praying because my life is broken. I'm going through a divorce. I lost a loved one. My life is a train wreck. But I'm gonna ask you this morning to come forward in prayer. If you've thought about it, but you've never done it, this morning is your morning to come forward in prayer. And I don't know what you need to be praying for if the prayer team can come forward. I don't know what you need to be praying for, but God knows. And so as the band plays, there will be people up front here and just come forward. We've opened up the center aisle. We used to have it blocked off here with chairs and a TV. We opened it up so that it's easy to come forward this morning. Come forward in prayer because as Oswald Chambers said, it's not so much that prayer changes things as that prayer changes people and people change things.